Hi, and welcome to the September edition of Cinetopia. I'm Paul, director of the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, and I'm here today with Amanda, co-founder of Cinetopia. Amanda, how's things with Cinetopia this month? Great. We just had a, a film battle, um, the first ever film battle between Cinetopia and Cinema Attic. Uh, we brought some Italian short films. Um, we also brought some Italian food by Morema, uh, Wild Morema, and mm. um, <laughs> Spain... Uh, Cinematic brought some short films, uh, and there was a live vote, and uh, unfortunately, we lost. So, Spain so this won was out. like an Italy versus Spain. Yeah, it was sort of yeah. like a film event. It was supposed to be fun, but we we kind of had this live voting aspect of it. So, wow. we, so okay. there was a bit of a competition. There was a lot of people there. Um, I think everyone seemed to enjoy it. There was a lot of beer, Italian and Spanish. So, really? <laughs> I think uh, people really had a good time, good food. Uh, so, hopefully, we'll be doing it again. Great. So. What you're going to find two other countries to yeah, I think perhaps up. maybe like yeah. Greece. It's really good. Scotland v England. <laughs> Scotland versus England. There's a good one. <laughs> Lots of options. French, French yeah. versus Spain. Who knows? That's true. Yeah. So the world's your oyster, literally. <laughs> exactly. USA v Canada. Would that be? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so it was a great success. And uh, now live voting. That was a quite an interesting thing. How did that actually work? Yeah. So there's um, you know multiple different kinds of things you can do online. But basically, any after every film, there was a you went on you went to a certain URL and actually Annie um, was was coordinating that and we could see live how many people were voting so mm -hmm. as as the evening went on there were more votes for for films which I think was an, not in our favor oh <laughs> because right. we averaged around yeah. a 3.5 for um, well, Italian films okay. and I think the um, Spanish films were more in the lines of fours so did, yeah did you have a separate vote for the food Yes, we did. Okay, and who won but that? The, well, Italy won that, <laughs> wow. um, but you know it's Italian food, so you, it's, it's hard. It's hard to beat. Um, both were really great, and uh, I, I I still go with Moretti over Estrella any day. So mm, fair point. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, also, I'm with uh, Jim Ross, the managing editor of Take One. Jim, so Take One, what's been happening in September with the magazine? Uh, all the film festivals, all the <laughs> film festivals are happening. Uh, yeah, they kind of swamped under with uh, writing from various different festivals. So there's been Venice, Toronto, there's a lot of really oh. small ones happening around mm -hmm. uh, Scotland. Before our next show, there's the uh, Scottish Queer International Film Festival. Uh, Take One Action mm -hmm. is kicking off. You'll uh, hear about that uh, as well. Uh, basically, just a whole bunch of them. And then there's the London Film Festival right at the end of the month um so we'll be covering quite a lot of that but basically it is film festival season <laughs> so it's just it seems they all hit and of course right at the the end of that there will be the edinburgh short film festival right, course, yes. which we're covering uh october 24th we're starting so you're going to cambridge as well i think i believe for the cambridge film festival yes yes i think that'll probably be our main one i'll go down to cambridge for a few days of that but that's the one uh well actually we, we covered more from glasgow this year but historically mm -hmm. that's the one we do the most at because of course that's where we started yes, so okay. great stuff and and um, you're looking forward also to, say, covering... Are you going to the London Film Festival? Uh, we have people going. I'm not going myself. Ah, uh, I've got access to the digital viewing library for it, though, which I think is a very good thing. So you can see some of the smaller films uh, remotely and cover it remotely. Edinburgh International Film Festival did the same thing. Um, so I'll be doing that, and I'll probably see some of the smaller films that way. But we've got... Uh, two people who will actually be there in London for us covering some stuff as well. Great stuff. So a lot of writing ahead, late nights, coffee. Yeah, probably. Yep. Great stuff. <laughs> um, great. And I'm also here with there are another of our regulars, Annie. 
Asakainen and co-founder of Cinetopia. Annie, what have you been up to? Right, so we've been running a lot of uh, Cinetopia events for Scalarama. We had our first one was uh, a documentary by Kazuhiro Soda called Inland Sea. It was the Edinburgh premiere, not the Scotland premiere, but Edinburgh premiere of the, of the mm. film. Uh, it's a great, great observational documentary, and I think people really loved it. I love seeing it. I've seen it like three times now, and it's still three amazing. Um, and now next up, uh, after the food and film fight, after the, uh, being a sore loser, we're screening uh, <laughs> <laughs> Bend It Like Beckham this Wednesday, so that's tomorrow. Um, that's in Lee Theatre, and we're pairing it up with uh, some food from Punjabi Junction, so great Punjabi stuff. food. Wow, that's and that's uh, in collaboration with Real Girl Film Club, isn't yes, it? Yes, that is, yeah. So Real Girl is, is a big, big factor to it. So it's because of the, the Women's World Cup that we wanted to screen something uh, football-based mm -hmm. and, you know, Bend It Like Beckham. It's a British classic, you know. That's right, it's a yes, no-brainer, really. Good. And then afterwards, we are doing... Um, the final event for Scalarama for us is the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Rocky Horror, when's that? That is on the 27th, 27th. You know, on a Friday. Yeah, and it's going to be a bit of audience participation, there, so expect to right. see some rice and toast and stuff. So that's going to be great. Yes, that's right. And yeah. people dressed up, hopefully. We hope You're people going are going to dress that, up. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. So you're <laughs> encouraging people to dress up in costume for Rocky Horror. I take it you'll be doing that yourself. Oh, uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be, I, I'm always just running the tech, so I'm like, right. you know, I'm the runner at the backs. Well, don't look uh, at me. <laughs> <laughs> You'll do a great Frank, Frank <laughs> version. <laughs> well, I'll look at try. Um, no, that um, sounds fantastic. You'll get, I'm sure, a, a big audience for a Rocky Horror. That's yeah, it's going to be a big cool. cult movie. Um, so looking forward to that. Yeah. But how about you yourself, Paul? You're doing the Edinburgh Short Film Festival. So yes. Tell um, me a bit about the programme. Like. Great programme this year. Very diverse. We're um, everything from uh, Taiwanese animation to... Uh, drama from Ghana, um, a documentary from Canada, and most points in between, really. So, yeah, fantastic. We're really excited. We've got everything from uh, this year's Oscar-winning short and Cannes-winning short to um, films being a camcorder in the back streets of Edinburgh. So, lots of guests coming. Um, full programme October 24th. We start. We'll be hearing a bit more about that next month, I'm sure. Oh, that sounds really, really cool. So in this episode, as normal, we'll be reviewing a few films from September, starting with It Chapter 2, The Last Tree, a new British drama by Sholo Amu, and Harry Burrell presents Films of Love and War. We'll also be interviewing Dana from Gaze, who has her Scalarama event tonight, as well as Tamara from Take One Action Festival, which starts later this week. So the first review from... Uh, this month's episode is the film It Chapter 2 by Stephen King. Amanda was traumatised by clowns when she was younger, so refused to review this film. But we have, luckily, um, <laughs> Jim and Annie there are made of Stenner stuff and uh, braved, braved the horror there to watch the film for you, and we'll review it now. Right, so It Chapter 2 is the second part of It films. So the first called It Begins, second one It Ends. No, it doesn't. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's directed by Andy Muschietti. Um, he is the director of the first It film, as well as a horror film, Mama, but not much more, according to my research. Uh, the film takes place 27 years after the first one, um, uh, where everyone, the main characters, have grown up. Uh, they've forgotten all of their uh, problems with uh, Pennywise, and they get, get dra dragged back to the to Derry, or London Derry, if you're from the UK. Um, to meet Pennywise once again. So, uh, after all my stupid jokes, Jim, <laughs> what did you think about it, Chapter Two? Uh, so, I, I had a, a strange experience with this film this week because I hadn't seen the first part. Um, so, I decided to watch it earlier in the week. So, I've been on a bit of a whatever it came out to, like six hour killer clown binge uh, this week, basically. 
and it, it, I found it a bit much by the time I got to the end of it. The, the first, the first one, of course, like wildly popular. It became non-adjusted for inflation, like the highest-grossing horror film of all time, I think. But the the second one, as you say, it picks up with them when they're adults, and at the conclusion of the previous film, they've made a pact to come back should Pennywise it this you know the creature which takes the form of a clown. Uh, come back to their hometown of Derry, Maine. So it does start phoning. Uh, the guy who stayed there, Mike, uh, has started phoning them all up and they kind of reassemble. Um, it is a very sprawling film. It's very long. Uh, I'd be lying if I said I really felt the length. I've seen a lot of complaints about the length and I don't think I really felt it. What you do feel is it's, it's a very choppy film. Um, I think it's got quite a lot of very good bits to it mm. but they are bits um i don't always feel like what was happening on screen uh was progressing the story it was me mm. fleshing out the characters which i quite liked but in terms of momentum behind what was happening i don't think it had a lot of it um there's a lot of good stuff going on and there's a lot of good performances in there which i'm sure we'll get to in a minute um, but it is a very baggy film. I mean, we we spoke on the the last show about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which mm-hmm. was loose and baggy and fairly in, undisciplined. This also is, just in a different way, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, you're right, though, that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood felt much longer and when sitting in the cinema. That felt like I sat there for ages, and then the ending was great. But in this one... It was kind of like you didn't really feel the length, but after like once you think back, you're like, God, a lot of things happened, but nothing really got told. Was yeah. my kind of feeling of the film. Although I had great expectations because I remember enjoying the first one, and I was like, Oh, it's going to be a great, you know, go into the cinema, have a bit of popcorn, have fun, and then I was kind of like really disappointed at what they had come up with. Um, maybe because they just had too much money and they could do whatever they wanted because anybody's going to go see it anyway. So that's a bit disappointing. Um, I felt as well that it lacks depth and, and substance. So it has a really good core idea of this like trauma. Um, people who've lived through thro- trauma in their childhood um, needing to face it to kind of get over it and heal. But that is it's just a kind of base idea and that's never really buffed out. It's never never really... It ne- I mean, beef chowder, it never really comes to the forefront. It's always just like a back thought of like, oh, yeah, that's it. And nothing really ever happens in terms of that. They don't really heal. They don't really deal with the trauma. It seems like they just live through experiences that they had in, in, in chapter one. Because I, I, I can remember like what this film did to me and made me realize how much I actually liked it one because <laughs> mm. I didn't really like this one but the it one was pretty good but then I felt like there was a lot of s- similar kind of, of stories in it so the way they spoiler alert kill the Pennywise in the end is a very similar way of how they kill it in the first film it's like how, did you just not remember how to get rid of it and how is this time going to be different than the first time it just makes no sense and then there was so many different storylines that the whole I hated the Native American storyline of like, yeah, they make some Native American char- charms and stuff like that. But that doesn't work. Why is it there? Like, well, it's interesting you say that. So like, I there's a couple of things you've said there that I really agree with. The, fir- the first one being that it doesn't really do a huge amount with the whole 
confronting childhood traumas, mm. right? Because it does try to do something with it, but the film doesn't, re- to me anyway, it feels like it doesn't really want to commit to whether this is a scare fest in terms of this is happening and, mm. you know, this is just an, an event they have to deal with, or whether it's taking some sort of it, being, and by it I mean it right is taking some sort of uh, metaphorical form of their child repressed childhood uh, fears memories uh, traumas yeah. because the, the, what I can see it at the start of the film is that everybody who has moved away from mm. Derry Maine apart from Mike uh, the conceit is that they've all basically forgotten what happened yeah. right and it's not terribly clear to me like what the mechanism was for that there's a bit of hand waving about you know oh when you leave Derry you start to forget about it or something but mm. then you know they're all going around with smartphones or Facebook on them so I mean you know I don't really understand how that's meant now I understand the setting has been updated from the novel mm. but still it so it, it doesn't really commit to whether is this happening is it a metaphor for something or is it a bit of both right yeah. and I think that's a bit jumbled the other part of it is, it's very similar to the first one actually, because right, I because yeah. I, I I and I'm surprised. I mean, to me anyway, because part of where the choppiness in this film comes from is basically you have the kids. Uh, well, I say the kids. I mean, they're adults now, right? But you have them. They're all brought together, uh, and then for plot reasons, capital P, capital R, right? Plot reasons, they need to go their own separate ways, mm. right, in order to get artifact for this ritual right because this is how they're going to take on pennywise right and we'll come back to that in a minute because that's the other part of what you've said there that i i kind of agree with they all go their separate ways they have their own separate story segments right but that's basically what happened the first one as well right you know you've got like eddie goes off and he's terrorized by pennywise and then you get uh, Richie goes off, and I think he's the one terrorized by a zombie, and it, like yes. it happens in the first one as well. And I, I feel like that's a deliberate decision in order to mimic what was going on in the first one, right? Because it's them reliving this experience almost, and by doing that, that's how they overcome it. Mm. But it does make it a bit repetitive. Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, and in terms of like some of the incoherence, right? So this there's this whole thing about the ritual of Chud. Right, right. Which took me a few goes to like actually figure out what it was they were saying. Because at first I thought it said the ritual of truth, and you know, mm-hmm. I've not read the novel, right? But apparently it's the ritual of Chud, and it's all kind of like based on this idea of like you know some people of uh, Native Americans have banished Pennywise before, mm-hmm. but. I think that really, I think that comes from the source material, right? Because yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I've not read it, but it's an enormous book, and if you read some of the the plot details, I mean, honestly, I I, I know what Stephen King was smoking when he came up with some of these mechanisms, but I'm I'm surprised they've done as good a job adapting it as they had. I feel like they maybe need just to be a little bit more brutal with it, though. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, you're right. It comes from the source material, but it, like you said, it could have been handled much better because this just makes into a very confusing film that just keeps going back and forth and back and forth and never really ending up anywhere. It's like because I think the original book kind of has those two storylines simultaneously, whereby this is like, well, the young kids come first, and then it's the adults, but then we kind of have to go back to the kids as well. And then, it, but like you said, it repeats the same story. So there's a group of kids, they're a group of friends, and then there's like individual relationship stuff happening. But then they need to confront their fears alone. 
And then in this one, they confront it as adults, but nothing has really changed. And that changes nothing that they confront them again, because <laughs> they just get some token from the first film um, that then leads to nothingness. It's just, I think it's just weird. Um, again, probably something that we can blame Stephen King for more than we can blame the filmmakers. But I feel like maybe in, in script form, it, it could have been made into something a bit different. I, I feel like they, they could have used their focus a little bit differently as well, right? Because in the first film, to me, I mean, I mean, it's good. I enjoyed it. I, the thing that was a standout for me, though, really was Bill Skarsgård as Pennywise, mm. as the clown, right? He he is really good. He's extremely, I'm not going to say scary, um, you know, because like, no, I'm, it's I, not I, scary I, at all. The film is not scary at all. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to say I was scared, but like, I've not developed a phobia of clowns off the back of it. But it is a very creepy performance right and that was basically i think what makes it slightly different to and I, I should point out i haven't seen seen this in full but based on what i have seen that's what made it different to tim curry's performance in mm. the the 1990 uh, miniseries mm. and he bill skarsgård is excellent in that role mm. i don't think they made as good use of him this time no, around no. there's a lot more you know spoiler alert there's a lot more huge cgi versions of him Aye, yeah um and it doesn't work as well like there's a very effective uh there's a very effective scene um which i'll, I'll talk about because it was in the trailer where a young girl goes and finds him kind of like underneath the sports bleachers at a, mm. a game it's the bit it's the bit where it, it went viral a little bit earlier in the year because he sounds creepily like winnie the pooh <laughs> hello <laughs> you know but um but no but that 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 segment that was really very effective mm. and there were there was more stuff like that in the first film i find they made yeah. better use for my money of Bill Skarsgård. There's that, and then another segment with uh, Jessica Chastain, who's playing the adult Beverly. There's a sequence mm -hmm. of her, which is also very good. But apart from that, there's the, I don't think they made as good a use. Certainly not at the film's climax, either. Yeah. There are a couple of bits where, you know, I've said they don't make good use of them, and I'm thinking of other bits where they did. But to me, it, it did lean heavily into... I think this one must have had a higher budget. It yeah. had to. It mm -hmm. absolutely had to. Which is not to you know imply the first one was made on a shoestring or anything like mm. that but it's definitely lent more to it and it's a, there's a lot more spectacle yeah. in this one yeah um and i feel like it's done that a little bit at the expense of the story progression and how the action relates to the characters yeah absolutely yeah no, the, I don't find the CGI monsters scary. So, like, there's a lot of it. There's a lot of little creepy crawlers, and then there's, like, like the the climax thing of the spider thing. It's just, I think it's just unnecessary. It's just, like, like you said, like, spectacle. That's You don't really need that in a horror film. Mm -hmm. Like, you could tell, you can, horror is a different thing than just having really fancy-looking spiders attack you. But then you mentioned the, um, the big budget on the... The CGI and stuff. They also, I read, they also de-aged the actors as well, the young actors, because you know it was two years between filming, and kids kind of grow up very fast. So I first I thought they would have just filmed because they knew that there's going to be a chapter two coming up afterwards, um, that they would have filmed some of the stuff or suits like used some of the old stuff that they shot but didn't use in the first film. Uh, to to tell the story on the second one, but then what I read online is like they actually re they shot the scenes with the kids and then just de-aged them, 
which is a bit I don't know it just sounds like they had way too much money in their hands and they were putting up way too much effort in way too much weight on the on the CGI part of it and making it look kind of cool but then the story just doesn't carry the weight I think um it's actually kind of reflecting the cast as well because it's got they, they have really quite a cast for the um the adult version of the losers club yeah. and in fairness to, to talk about something which is good about it i think they're extremely well cast for my money um it, it does speak to some of the issues with the film though like for instance this film I, it's it's more it's far more funny than it is scary mm, far yeah. more um, in particular, Bill Hader, who's playing the grown-up version of Richie, who's mm. played by Finn Wolfhard, um, who I forget his character. I think he's called Mike in Stranger Things, but he's kind of he's right, the yeah. the kid the kid in that, and uh, he's fantastic. I thought he was absolutely absolutely great, and I think a lot of the performances are actually pretty good. Yeah. I just don't think necessarily the events in the script back up that performance that well yeah um you know because it wants to make these points about metaphorically overcoming trauma but then the final battle is basically a big cgi mm. big cgi fest i mean basically like at the end of the first film and i'm not going to worry about spoilers for the first film the end of the first film they basically beat pennywise by beating it with sticks right <laughs> i mean it's not you know i mean it's it's quite because of the build-up that it's had to that point with the characters it has some sort of impact mm. but they they do basically just beat him with sticks. Mm. Here it's a it's a similar sort of thing, but it's a lot grander in scale. Yeah. And just to to add to the kind of confusion with the nineteen eighties nostalgia, if anybody's seen the third season of Stranger Things, it felt a lot like the climax of the third season of Stranger Things, oh. to be honest. Um, you know, the completely different setting. Like obviously, this one isn't in a shopping mall, mm. but it's. I, I'm also a bit overdosed on 1980s nostalgia by yeah. the time I was done with this because I would, you know, Stranger Things has been about for a few years now. It had its third season. I watched the first chapter of this on Tuesday. I watched this <laughs> uh, just the day before we came to talk about it here. Like enough with the 1980s nostalgia. Even enough. Then, a time machine. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think it's um, if you like the first one. I find it hard to believe you'll dislike this one. I don't think it's going to make as much of an impact. No, I, I really dislike this one. And I think I'd I'd like to say to everyone who hasn't gone and seen it and is like not sure if, if they should go and see it, maybe don't, because I don't want them to make a shit ton of money out of this. Because like it's, it's, it's not worth it. I don't think it is. I think it's a, a botched job of something that they could have done way better at. It, it's interesting you say that because they're ostensibly this is meant to be the one with the adults but there's a lot of segments with the kids i mm. actually think it could have even and i say this like i wasn't blown away by the first one but i did quite like it but there are segments with the child actors in this one where if they put that in the first one mm. rather than some of the other stuff or even if they just extended the first one to the running time of this one yeah i actually think it would have worked a lot better they'd still have had the option for the adult one and i think it then might have actually improved that one because then it would be more about a different time in life and making some sort of statement about that but it's just it's weird it's almost like it kind of like devalues some of the stuff in the first one because it ends up with this sort of like weird Rashomon type thing going on where you yeah. see stuff happening from <laughs> other perspectives and you're like well actually that would have been good to know in that film <laughs> so yeah it's, it's, it's a tricky one I don't think it's quite stuck the landing I, I think I'd 
was more ambivalent on it than you, but I was also mm. more ambivalent on the first one, so maybe it's kind of like less of a come down for me, perhaps. But yeah, 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 exactly. Now, on that note, um, we got you a fortune cookie, or Dana got you a fortune cookie. Oh boy. And since that's a, a direct reference to uh, it, chapter two, and okay. the, the Chinese restaurant scene, let's go and see. Does it say Stephen? Couldn't. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a bit freaked out by the idea of owning a fortune <laughs> cookie after that. It chapter two. Okay. Luca didn't cut it. Right, here we go. It's never crowded along the extra mile. There you go. There you go. Put the effort in, kids. Put the effort in. Is that the Royal Mile in After French Festival? Yeah, it's always crowded in Edinburgh. They never walked an extra mile in this city, I can tell you. Great. Well, thanks to Annie and Jim there for braving the horrifying world of Pennywise and it's just to write that review. So the next review is The Last Tree, a new film by Shola Amu, reviewed by Amanda and Jim. Yeah, so uh, The Last Tree, as uh, Paul just said, is a new film by writer-director uh, Shola Amu, his second film, partially autobiographical, actually. And the film revolves around Femi, a British boy of Nigerian heritage, uh, first played by Ty Golding, and finally, as he grows older, Sam Adawunmi. Um, he lives first with his with Mary, his foster mother, um, in a seemingly idyllic town in Lincolnshire. and But then his birth mother comes back to take him away to London, and he has to move to the inner city of London. And most of the film is about his struggle to adapt, finding new friends, working through his relationship with his mother. Sometimes there's some quite harrowing segments ab about that. Um, I found this film quite amazing, uh, but m very, very, like, the thing that hit me the most is how stunningly visual it is. So I'd really, the cinematographer was still Williams, and I just have to say, like, that that was really a lovely film to watch. I always joke with my partner about close-ups and depth of field. He thinks anything with a great depth of field is a good film. And um, I don't always, but I think um, the use of depth of field um, in these shots mixed with, like, the sound design um, was really sort of gave that impression of someone who's dealing with a struggle sort of inside about... Um, you know, reliance on other people, being, you know, like independent and in sort of their sense of identity. So I thought it really worked quite well. Um, what did you think, Jim? I would pretty much agree with all of that. Um, I think one thing that struck me about the film, uh, which really, I think, and there's some bits of it that work better than others, and I'm sure we'll get on to that, but overall I was very impressed with it, and it seems like a classic example of that whole show-don't-tell Right, there's not a lot of um, character development driven by you know lengthy dialogue exchanges. There's not a lot of explaining going on. It very much tries to immerse you in Femi's experience. Basically, you know, we start off with this very, very sort of like yellow, sun-drenched childhood in Lincolnshire, and it, you know, it seems very idyllic and. It's, it's it's very much shot in that way. And then you contrast that with when he moves away from his foster home into uh, basically inner city London with his mother. And it's a complete contrast. And when even there are little bits of dialogue to highlight that, they're very, very subtle. It's things like, you know, he's been playing football with his friends in Lincolnshire and all the rest of it. And when he comes into the, the estate that they're living in London, first of all, it's shot at night. Right, so it automatically looks a lot more kind of um, 
somber than where he'd left and then it's just you know they walk in it's in complete silence there's no dialogue but then just as they go into the lift the mother says oh watch out there's pee there and it's 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 little things like that where it doesn't over egg it and it's there's no histrionics in this film there's no kind of impassioned lengthy speeches about what have you done to me right there are flashpoints of course there are right because it's an emotional story but i think what you've hit upon in introducing the film there is that it is very visually driven and also by the acting performances um both uh, golding as the young femi and uh, sam adwinmi as the uh, teenage femi do excellent jobs um, and the performances across the board are really great, and I was extremely impressed with it. Yeah, I agree. I think um, I definitely, particularly, th- uh, thought Sam's the older, the older Femi was, you know, t- drove the film because I think it was probably one third into it where you start to go into in, into his role. Um, just watching his eyes and sort of like there's a lot of focus close-ups as we discussed about um uh, you know on him and it's not it's not overacted it's really really uh, like i i felt um his pain i think it's maybe one of his breakout um film for him to to star in so i think we'll probably see a lot from him in the future yeah, I, I mean, basically everybody involved. I mean, even right from the start, the um, the scene where he leaves his foster home to go to London, there's a goodbye scene with the the foster mother and all the rest of it. Like, I really felt that scene. Mm-hmm. I really felt it. Um, and then once... It's a fairly kind of, like, gently paced opening. Um, but then it's, once it gets to the, the London setup, it it's weaving in a lot of different things in there um because obviously you've got this idea of adjusting to somewhere new when you're a child and kind of like upheaval at that time in life like what sort of impact can that have on you what sort of lasting effects can it have um you're also dealing with his experience as a person of color in britain right because there's quite a lot of uh stuff about that his friends tease uh one girl in the film because she is also black, but her skin is darker than theirs, and that's something to go... You know, so there's a lot of stuff woven through about, you know, some universal experiences, some that are less so, but are interesting to see put on screen. There's actually a lot going on in terms of the character interactions and what they're trying to communicate with it. How you provide for a family, because you can contrast um, his foster mother with his actual mother... And you can even contrast that with uh, a friend who's kind of like running a bit of a, a criminal operation, tries to get Femi involved with it. He he says that he's doing it for his family. So you can even you can contrast all these three things. So there's kind of the responsibilities of parenthood as well, and what you should be giving uh, to children. And I think it on the whole it balances them all really pretty well. It's not like it's a handbrake turn from one to the other. It is just very gently kind of like flows from one aspect of it to the other and how they impact each other as well. I think, um, because we we both saw it together at a a press screening, but one of the things that um, does hit me though, um, and I wish I'd, is is that there's the, is the ending to me because there's a thing with me because of 400 blows is one of my favorite films and i'm starting to see over and over again this story of a, a boy at the end of a beach considering his life you know <laughs> and that's i noticed that in uh, shane meadows um i'm forgetting the name of the film um 
it's a, it's, a, it's a TV series too, and uh, uh, particularly Moonlight as well, which was definitely a reference to 400 Blows. Yeah. So then, and then there's some very similar sort of energy about this a film, you know, that you can't, it's almost hard not to sort of look at the way this was filmed and sort of see the similarities between Moonlight and obviously themes and stuff like that. So it's it, that, that was sort of slightly disappointing for me to, to sort of, you know that motif seems to just pop up too much for me and maybe that's why i'm you know because i'm on on it because it it is a, my favorite film you know yeah i think that, i mean as much as i like the film i think that's a valid criticism um it's it's very obviously influenced for me with uh by barry jenkins filmmaking right now because of the the trajectories following uh the, you know a, a young black man the obvious comparison is Moonlight, and it definitely shares quite a lot of similarities with Moonlight. I actually think, in some ways, it it reminded me more of Beale of if Beale Street could talk, and it was mm. a, I don't know, it was something about the the music. The one, the, the only parts of it that don't particularly, it's not that they don't work; they just don't work quite as well. Is and I think your your reference to somebody contemplating their life sitting on the beach plays into this. It it leaps over into just a little bit too syrupy a couple of points uh you know just a couple of points where the cinematography is a little bit too dewy-eyed and the soundtrack is a little bit too earnest and string driven they're fleeting it gets away with it but you know if you were going to nitpick anything i think that would be the thing to to nitpick at it just it, every so often it just pushes something a little bit too far when it when it doesn't need to because the performances are all very naturalistic um particularly when you're in the london segments the the shooting style kind of backs that up as well certainly when they're not doing the close-ups so it didn't really need to do that and i think if i was going to change anything about it maybe i'd dial a couple of those segments back a bit but overall the way that the acting plays with the script and also the way it's shot i think it all blends together to make really a very effective character driven story uh, yeah, I agree, and I was I was trying to remember the name of it, but it's this is England by Shane Meadows, which yeah, again, gonna, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is again this idea of a a young boy, um, sort of contemplating and their identity in life and stuff like that. So, perhaps using that trope a little bit too much, guys. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so is it? It's supposed to be taking place in the eighties, right? Because is that why there's the Cure song sort of coming through or i know it's auto semi-autobiographical but i couldn't really tell a time it's here. not gonna well because they've got so there, there there is a subplot with the um this sort of like this criminal gang and they give them uh what is a fairly old looking mobile phone so it's definitely yeah, it's like sort of contemporary 90s, yeah. i think that but given the given the semi-autobiographical nature i mean i kind of placed it like you know early noughties late 90s something like that it's certainly not like super contemporary like right now because obviously he's wandering around with a uh, CD player, oh, right. a portable yeah, yeah, yeah. CD player. But it, I'm glad you mentioned the Cure actually, because it's another one of these themes which is dealt with in the film, and I think it's done very well. Like one part that really stood out to me is, as we said, so Femi is listening to the Cure through his headphones, and his friend comes up to him and goes, "Ah, oh, what are you listening to?" And he says, "Tupac." Yeah. Right. So it's kind of this this wrestling with your your own identity and how you can't even really be honest about it even with kind of you know your peers at the time and it, 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 it kind of captured that that teenage experience very well like i even had some sympathy for the whole right so the character's full name full first name is olu femi right but he's known as femi so of course 
every time a register is taken in the school, he has to say, oh, my name's Femi. Oh, well, it says Olu Femi on my register. I knew so many kids that went through that at, at school, and it's, like, incredibly frustrating. So it's this idea of not being able to assert your identity and why. And they right. weave lots of different reasons in this film, but it captures a lot of stuff extremely well. And just, through, as I've said earlier, just through little things like that, it really fleshes out wonderfully. Yeah, on a similar note, my mom put Mandy on all of my teacher's <laughs> things in elementary school, and I had to tell everybody, no, it's not Mandy, it's Amanda. And <laughs> <laughs> it was quite frustrating. See, it's the opposite. You've got, you know, you're going for the slightly more forward, because, of course, like that, so I'm Jim, but my name's James, right? <laughs> but I, I never, never, ever go by it. You've kind of gone the opposite way there. But mm -hmm. I feel like I had that same conversation. They're like, but it says right here, and it's like, Come on, I'm re I'm asserting <laughs> my name is now Amanda. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So our next review is Harry Burrow Presents Films of Love and War by the director Matt Pinder, reviewed by Amanda and Jim. And Annie. Oh. Yeah, hey. <laughs> anyway. Uh, Harry Burrell Presents Films of Love and War is a, uh, like you said, directed by Matt Pinder and produced, uh, co-produced by Karina Burrell, who is the granddaughter of Harry Burrell. Um, it's a story of an amateur filmmaker, uh, Harry Burrell, who's, uh, who used to capture his life on camera. He had an extensive library of archive films, um, ranging from home videos he shot of his, his kids growing up to uh, stock that he shot at the, the Second World War. Um, and it's the, the war stock that the, the film mostly concentrates on. Um, it's narrated by Rob Stark, Richard Madden. Um, and it's, 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 it's a good length of a film. It's about an hour and a half. Uh, it's going through a lot of uh, uh, what he, he went through in the war. Um, he was stationed in India, Burma and Nepal um, uh, with uh, the Second World War um, fighting against Japan. Um, so he, he mostly has colour film, which is interesting of the time. Um, and he was, I believe the film says, the only person on <laughs> in, in India, I think, at that time who had that. He, he had a good uh, reason. To, he can't remember what it was exactly, but he convinced the army to give him um, a film stock, a, a colour color film stock, because he could tell the difference between fake trees and real trees that the enemy would be planting on the, the war, you know, the, what do you call it? Fighting grounds. <laughs> Battlefield. Battlefield, yeah. thank you, Jim, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I like the aspect of it being this kind of unearth, rarely seen archive footage that the general audiences would not have a chance to see because it was his own home library and I don't believe it was in any kind of like a national library of Scotland before they actually started digitizing some of this footage and gave it forward. Um, it's not at all badly put together. Like I said, it's a good length of a film. It's not too long. It packs a bit of an emotional punch uh, in the way it shows um, the, the grandchildren and children um, seeing their elders in, in wartime in actual live footage not just photography but but in on in video as well it has a different kind of effect on you um but it, it's it's an all right film uh i wasn't a massive fan it got uh voted as the audience winner of the audience award in glasgow film festival is now going on a film tour 
Um, and it's it's worth a watch if you're into that kind of stuff. And the archive footage itself is, is beautiful. And it's amazing to see something that you would not otherwise get to see. It's like a very first-hand experience on on uh, uh, trenches and stuff like that in, in, in India. Um, but, I don't know, Jim, tell me a bit about what you thought about it. Um, I thought it was very well made. Um, I'm not... Uh, I mean, we'll come to this in a minute, and I think you've kind of, you, you kind of alluded to it at the end. I'm not I'm not sure how much it needed to be a feature length documentary, if mm. I'm being honest. Um, but it is pretty fascinating. Uh, I mean, some of the images that uh, Harry Birrell has caught during his uh, career in the armed forces are absolutely incredible. Um, mm. You know, and like he was sent with. Uh, uh, battalion to explore parts of Myanmar, Burma at the time, uh, which apparently hadn't been mapped and things like that. And basically, he has an enormous amount of footage from all over. Um, so it's kind of fascinating to see that. As you say, a lot of it is presented in colour, um, which is really quite unusual. So it shares a little bit of uh, similarity with some other documentaries that have come out. You know, you had Peter Jackson's colorized mm, yeah. uh, history of the First World War and thing, or was it colorized or was it color film? It was, I think it was colorized, yeah. Right, okay. So it, it has some similarities there, um, but it's really quite well, quite well done. Uh, I mean, I think the editing is fantastic mm. because it really presents a very coherent story of this man's life obviously you know traversing significant moments in both his life but also the history of the world mm. as well so it's very well done in that respect it's very well edited um it actually brought to mind something that we reviewed on this show right as a kind of a counterpoint to how this is where i think it's been done well mm. but a couple of shows ago we reviewed a documentary called armstrong yeah. which was about Neil Armstrong and again it featured uh, kind of home videos speaking with relatives and all the rest of it and it was I mean it wasn't good it wasn't good right <laughs> it, it wasn't without merit but it wasn't good this is kind of the other side of that coin where I think it is done very well I think it's very engaging and it's an interesting thing to see where I think it kind of falls down a little bit is I'm not really sure whether it needed to be a feature-length documentary. Like, it, it feels to me like the sort of thing which is important to see and is important for people to be able to uh, take in, but I don't think it needed to be in the form of uh, a feature-length documentary, if I'm being honest. I think it, it will find its natural home as a, you know, something that will screen on television, maybe mm. the odd kind of like special screening in cinemas. I don't think it needs to be seen in a cinema, but really i'm not going to grouse about that part of it too much because i think the sort of footage it's displaying is fascinating and i think especially seeing as it's going on a cinema tour i think it's a thing that's worth supporting and you know this preservation of film history is an important thing to do so it, i i think it's a film worth supporting i don't think it's the best documentary i've ever seen but it is extremely interesting and i think it really is worth a, a look when it goes on that tour sure amanda what do you think about it yeah, I agree with you. I think the archive footage itself was just an amazing gem of like stuff that like I would want to watch over and over and over again. The way that I feel like they presented the film through this uncovering of it was not anything novel or anything new. And as somebody who has, you know, made films with this kind of style, I think it was like the men in the pa I forgot the name again of another documentary that sort of came up with this idea of like animating all of this old sort of make it look oldie mappy sort of, you know, titles and stuff like that. 
really drives me a little nuts when you see it over and over and over again. It's a bit repetitive. Um, don't fake it. It's there. It's, it exists. It's beautiful. And, 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 and I, I think they had to push you along that story a little bit too long. It, 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 it might have been an interesting presentation of this archive film in a separate in, in another way, and I feel like if it had been slightly more innovative, um, I would have liked it better. I th well, one way or the other, I think. I mean, it could have been more in innovative. I don't think that the framing device, which is around, um, I think she produced the film as well, Karina Burrell, his uh, granddaughter. Um, and as you say, there's kind of this framing device, which is a conceit of, you know, they've unearthed it in the, the shed, which... I don't think it's actually really all that true either. Like, I mean, like Harry Birrell, I think, was known as a, a good amateur filmmaker. Mm -hmm. He had a screening room in his house and things like that. So that part of it doesn't really work for me. Um, there are other bits where... So Richard Madden, who, you know, as Annie said in the intro, most people will know as Rob Stark. He was also the lead in uh, Bodyguard. Um, he does a very good job narrating this, and to, not, not that I want to keep beating that Armstrong documentary with a stick, right? But like that had a Harrison Ford voiceover where he just sounded completely bored. Richard Madden, I think his narration here does a very good job because it's very, it's very, it's very measured. It's not very up and down, but it is kind of. It's got that kind of like warm, welcoming tone to it, right? Which is exactly what you need for this. And he's narrating um, Harry's diaries, and there were bits where they let it speak for itself or they have imagery to back it up from the the archive films and then there were other bits where they animated the words kind of in the style of these kind of like music lyric videos yeah those bits didn't really work for me i don't think it really needed it because they had quite a strong narration from richard madden i don't think it really needed it so there's bits and pieces that don't really work and i feel like that was it trying to kind of get shoehorned into a feature film kind of exactly. format did it start with a woman narrating it though which i thought was a bit yeah bit well, well the book ended with it, his granddaughter doing yeah. bits of it um you know like talking about her grandfather i think you know where they found it this sort of thing so the only bit that she, she's in it like a reasonable amount and obviously they talk to a couple of people as well but any bits where it's harry's diaries it's narrated by richard madden yeah i i think i just sort of see five documentaries i've already seen in this i mean in some ways it's saving brinton in some ways it's the stories we tell and in some ways it's armstrong or kid stays in the picture and and that's where like we have a precious archive and you know perhaps perhaps finding a new way to tell that uncovering of an archive would have i would have enjoyed more i although it's worth seeing just for the footage alone yeah the footage is incredible So I'm here with Dana from Gaze. Hi, Dana. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for... Not at all. And you've, you've been uh, here in Edinburgh for a few years now uh, doing screen exhibition. Um, what's your background there? And, um, and, and tell me a little bit more about Gaze as well. Yeah, um, I firstly come here to study in uh, Edinburgh Uni Film Exhibition Curation, as uh, Amanda as well. And um, so after I graduated, I stay here and start uh, working as a freelancer doing some... Um, independent film screenings here and i started gaze just last year mm -hmm. uh, which is uh i've got a website i've got film pages so basically we organize monthly screening event mainly focus on chinese language films uh from taiwan hong kong china but 
mostly from Taiwan at the moment because I'm from mm -hmm. Taiwan, so I have more um, friends and people who can get me films from there. Great, and, yeah. and you're doing uh, an event at Scalarama, which is on tonight. Um, at the Banshee Labyrinth, is that right? Yeah, at Banshee Labyrinth, uh, they open at 7, so uh, people can come in at 7, but the screen should start at half past 7-ish. 7.30, right. Yeah. And um, it's a film called The Vengeance of the Phoenix Sisters, uh, a 1960s black and white film. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, it's a wuxia film, well, but uh, wuxia is the kung fu films, and it homage to the Dragon Inn by director King Hu, which is one of the very important wuxia film in the Chinese uh, cinema history, and also in the film because the director himself he was the technician on uh, working in the Dragon Inn crew as well, so mm -hmm. um, there's some part that he's paying tribute to the dragon in like one of the main characters female but dress up as a man something like that like mm -hmm. a similar plot yeah cool and and is it a film you've always wanted to screen or is it just something you you had an opportunity to to show to edinburgh audiences um actually uh as i mentioned we uh me and a friend who's called lucas he's a director he's also taiwanese we we have this monthly screening going on and vengeance of the phoenix sisters is one of our um monthly program and since september there's corona coming on so i thought oh we can put it in september because mm -hmm. it's a kind of special like black and white wuxia and it's a Taiwanese language one instead of Mandarin Chinese, so slightly different from the the Chinese films you see here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's 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 quite going to be quite new. Is this the first time you think it's it's been screened in Edinburgh? I think so. To be honest, I think it's the first time um, it's been screened in Scotland. Oh right, it's <laughs> yeah. a Scottish premiere. That's yeah. great. Um, now it's it's a kung fu for action film, is it? Or yeah, right. it's okay. a kung fu action film, and I'm not. I mean, yeah, do, you, I do you associate those with Taiwanese cinema? I mean, is that um, the Taiwan, um, the Taiwanese film, uh, Taiwanese language film was quite popular back in the sixties. They've made like, they've made the high, uh, the highest time they've made a hundred, more than a hundred films in a year in Taiwanese language. Okay, mm -hmm. and uh, but then later on, because of the well, it's about the history in Taiwan now. Mm -hmm. um, later on, because the KMT government, which is they come from China and they speak Chinese, they don't want people to speak Taiwanese anymore. So Ooh, they okay. stopped. They stopped the Taiwanese language film production. They want everyone to speak Chinese, so they start to produce like uh, films in Chinese language. So I, I suppose, in yeah. some senses, the Taiwanese language film is is, is a political. Yeah, just, yeah, because yeah, Taiwanese language. Well, I call it Taiwanese language, but it's uh, it's it should be a dialect in all the Chinese languages because China is so big, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, so it's some sort of political issue. So they stop producing Taiwanese film until. 90s maybe okay yeah right. wow. so um what is this kind of typical of taiwanese film i mean is this the kind of film that would be appreciated commonly in, uh, in it would taiwanese be appreciated commonly i think or i both both the taiwanese people chinese people or even international because it's a it's a kung fu film 
people、mm. love kung fu film,、yeah. <laughs> so I think should be appreciated by、uh, internationally. So it should be okay. Yeah. And is that kind of is that kind of an industry in Taiwan?、Um, kung kung fu films is that something that they made a lot of?、Or? Yeah, still back in the sixties and seventies, kung fu films were quite popular until Hong Kong studios taken over. The Hong Kong kung fu film become more popular than the Taiwanese productions.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. So,、uh, well,、um, thanks for coming along today.、Um, hopefully, the, w- the event will go well at、uh, the Banshee Labyrinth. Is that right? Yeah,、um, it's at Banshee Labyrinth tonight.、Uh, door opens at seven because Banshee opened at seven, and we're hoping to start the screening seven thirty ish. Seven thirty at the Banshee,、yeah. and that sounds great. Is, is there a ticket price?、Um, No, it just pay us you like some donation at the door. Okay,、yeah. that's cool. And if somebody was interested in gays and and the film tonight, is there a website or somewhere they could go to、uh, to get more information? You can look up Gay Cinema on Facebook, and then、uh, there's a link to the website. Great、yeah. stuff. Well, well, good luck with the screening. I look forward to、uh, to the event and、uh, best wishes. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thanks. So I'm here with Tamara from Take One Action Festival, which starts tomorrow, the 18th of September, and runs right throughout the month. So Tamara, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Paul. That's all.、Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Take One Action? I'd love to know actually how the festival came about. Of course.、Uh, so Take One Action was set up in 2008 by a gentleman called Simon Bateson, and Simon had been working in two very different fields at the time. He'd been working as a film editor for a while. And then he got involved with international development,、um, and he went to Sierra Leone、um, at the time that the country held its first free elections, and witnessed、um, uh, a vibrancy within the civil society there that he had not seen in the UK. And upon his return, wondered how one might be able to generate、uh, more involvement within civil society in in Scotland specifically. And he was involved with a film called Black Gold. I don't know if you ever came across it. A film about coffee, which really put the issue of fair trade coffee and the and the working conditions of、uh, in, co- in coffee plantations、um, brought them into the limelight、uh, and forced companies like Starbucks to rechange their practices. And that experience made him、uh, think a, a lot more about what film could do to engage people around issues that matter to us all on the planet. And that's how he set up the festival. He went to film house, asked them if they'd be interested, and they embraced it and have supported it ever since. That's great. And what's, what's your role in the festival this year?、Um, I'm the director. The、uh, director. There's only two of us <laughs> in the organisations who work、uh, throughout the year. My colleague Kirsty Somerville, who's the festival producer, and myself. Great. So, so we're already at launch on the 18th. What, what, are, what do you think are some of the highlights that people can expect to see this year? Wow, there's. It's always hard when people ask you to <laughs> pick your favourites, like your children.、Um, it's, quite, it's quite a big. There's quite a, a large. It's quite a big brochure. There's quite a lot going on. So I mean, we pack quite a lot over the twelve、mm-hmm. days of the festival, and obviously, it takes us a whole year to bring that program together. So we're very attached to every single one of these titles.、Um, but there's lots of different things that people can involve with, can get involved with, and can enjoy. I think that's one of the things that I appreciate about the festival is that even though. Ninety percent of our program, ninety-eight percent of our program is documentaries.、Um, do- documentaries themselves, as a genre, have evolved so much that you can enjoy very different types of narratives and very different types of cinema within our program. So, for example,、uh, our opening film, Push, is、uh, very much an investigative documentary around the global housing crisis, 
and it's an issue that's extremely topical and it just so happens that our festival opens tomorrow on Scottish Housing Day, um, which is focusing this year on the issue of housing as a human right. So <laughs> this feels really pertinent and it's, as many people uh, who listen to your show will be aware of, Edinburgh and Glasgow um, and other parts of Scotland are cities where homelessness and issues around housing are becoming more and more problematic. So. Um, I hope that the fact that we're screening this film within that context and that we've got people from Shelter, from Oxfam, from Unison taking part in the conversation, but also we've brought, we're bringing people from Living Rent, from Unity, who are campaigning groups really active on the ground, um, can give people a better sense of what the reality is currently in these cities and what we can do to reclaim housing as a human right, as it should be. But we've also got films like um, Ambessa, which is an absolutely stunning piece of cinema uh, documentary about a young boy in um, Ethiopia who lives on the outskirts of Addis Ababa. And um, though the film can be described as a film about urbanization and uh, development, it's actually the portrait of a, an incredibly curious, inquisitive, um, intelligent and sensitive boy and of his inner world. And the documentarian manages to bring that inner world to life on film. And I think I think films that can do that can get you to understand something really complex, something that involves microeconomics, but also a child's imagination is is fabulous. Um, and also another type of event that we're organizing on, fri on Friday, we've got um, the screening of a film called Soilism, which again is more of an investigative documentary, but we're screening it with uh, three short films from different parts of the world, um, which will uh, no doubt please you yes, <laughs> as a short film programmer. Yeah, so we show, we're screening short films from Peru, from Colombia, from Switzerland, and we've got a documentary and two, and two animations. Um, and then perhaps most importantly for a lot of people's bellies, we're screening the film um, with a meal from Slow Food. Um, and then the discussion will involve um, Alex Renton, who's a really interesting and knowledgeable uh, journalist and author who wrote a book called Planet Carnival. Um, we've got a representative from Nourish Scotland who are actually based in the same premises as this very studio. Um, and we've got a representative from Unison as well. So it's, it's a very full evening. Uh, you've got food for the belly, food for the thought, <laughs> and then connection, which is a big thing for us. Sounds great. Uh, very involving. And uh, now you're, you're taking the festival out of Edinburgh and, and travelling around Scotland, I understand. So we will how, be. how is that working out this year? Have you, wh so what place are you going to? So we've been, so the festival itself has uh, been for, for several years, for many, many years now, taking place in both Glasgow and Edinburgh at the same time, which is interesting log logistically because you find yourself spending a lot of time on Scotrail trains. <laughs> um, oh so we, we have screenings in both cities uh, every night um, and sometimes during the day as well. And then in... Uh, beyond the dates of the festival. So we've got 18th to 29th in Edinburgh and Glasgow. And then in October, we're visiting Stirling for the first time during the Central Scotland Documentary Festival. We're taking the film Skin Birds to Stirling, uh, which I can't recommend highly enough. It's a fascinating documentary about, about youth, about um, exclusion, about, about the choices that young women face today um, in areas of deprivation in Scotland. Um, it's incredibly beautiful. And it's also very respectful of its protagonist, who's given um, a lot of agency during the film. I, I well, as you can hear, I really love it. <laughs> uh, it's a film that we um, co-hosted the UK premiere of during the Edinburgh Film Festival, but we're really pleased to bring it back to Edinburgh and Glasgow. We're taking it to Stirling in October, um, but also to Dundee as part of um, Dundee University's Festival of the Future, and also to Loch Gilphead. So this Loch is our Gilphead. first screen machine screening. Oh yeah. Um, mm -hmm got two films that we're taking uh, with the screen machine, actually. Um, so as well as Skimbirds, which is going to Lock Elphead, we've got a beautiful, um, really involving documentary called Eating Up Easter, which is screening uh, on Saturday the 28th of September in Edinburgh. But then it's going to be traveling with the screen machine to places like Gia, 
to Bambekala, uh, to one or two of the Orkney Islands. Um, and because the film focuses on Christmas Island, uh, not Christmas Island, my apologies, focuses on Easter Island uh, in the Pacific, uh, and looks at how massive development and tourism is impacting the indigenous population of the island, it's incredibly relevant to people in Scotland, mm -hmm. especially yeah. island populations in Scotland. So we're really chuffed that we can take this film. And is this the first time you've gone to the islands or to these kind no, of... No, uh, Take One Action used to, mm -hmm. uh, used to tour um, quite extensively in Scotland, um, but it was a model that we struggled to sustain by ourselves just because mm -hmm. we're such a small organisation, uh, especially once you become parents. So um, Simon, who created the organisation, became a parent. I am a parent myself. Mm -hmm. It becomes quite difficult to be away for a long time. And so do, you think, do you think these audiences in, in these places, how do, they, how do they react? Do they act differently to urban audiences? Or do you think they're you're exposing them to quite radical film, you know? So I'm just wondering. But the how audiences there are as diverse as audiences here, you know, like people come with very different um, expectations. Sometimes they might be a bit surprised about the way that we organize our events, but their knowledge of current affairs and their appetite for art is just as big as anyone, as in, as anyone here. And sometimes they're, they're even more grateful than people here because they don't get to enjoy it quite as often. And I think. You know, a key aspect of what we do, a key aspect of what all festivals do, is to bring people together. Um, we can all watch an amazing array of films now online. I mean, more than ever in my lifetime. You can watch amazing documentaries from your home. But what we do through festivals is to actually bring people together. And for Take One Action, that connection is absolutely key because I think there's a massive difference between awareness and understanding. And when you watch a film with other people, when you get to pick it apart, you know whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, but if you get to pick it apart with others and you get to really understand what your relationship is to these issues that are explored on screen, it makes a massive difference. Mm -hmm. And if you want to be active, if you want to change the world, you need to, you need to go beyond that awareness and you really need to understand how you can impact um, those issues and what, what routes to action you can find. And if we can connect people better to other campaigners, then, then we're doing a really good job. I know you have uh, a very unique way of organising your debates and Q&As and so on at your events. Can you tell me a bit about your approach to, to dealing with interviews and, and question and answer sessions? Yeah, of course. Um, so one of the things that we've done for quite a while now, and, and to some people it might seem gimmicky, but we've stopped calling them panel sessions or panel discussions. Because we acknowledge that a lot of people who come to see the films that we screen are already very aware of the issues that these films um, explore. Some of them are very knowledgeable themselves. So we know that there is knowledge in the room and um, I guess inspired by um, theories of popular education, we want to ensure that people actually get to be active and to contribute to themselves, not just to be listening. You know, cinema is quite a passive activity. Mm -hmm. So if you, you know, you've got a 90 minute film and then on top of that you slap a 40 minute discussion where people are just sitting and listening, where's the participation? So we really wanted to make our events more participatory um, and also just starting from the very moment that we wonder who to bring into the room. You know, we work with our volunteers in trying to identify organizations and groups that may have something really interesting to say. So we bring our volunteers into that uh, role and then ev almost every film that we present has a, an organization that supports the screening and those organizations themselves bring a, a host of knowledge around context in which those issues might be understood in Scotland and that's also very important to us to, to bring that local context to bear on the way that we explore the issues that the films themselves explore. And do you have a lot of guests coming this year? That well I think I've, I've, I've been emailing them for the last few days <laughs> to just confirm everything so I think we've got more than 70 or 80 mm, contributors okay. in total. 
So, yeah. We're not all on stage at the same time. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the cinema is a bit like <laughs> And the audience will get to say anything. Yes. No, we've got lots of different types of people. Mm -hmm. We've got, um, I mean, I've got an astrophysicist who also oh, happens okay. to be a sword-wielding a sword -wielding martial artist wow, who's right. taking part in an event on uh, Friday in Glasgow. Uh, we've got, you know, representatives from, obviously, Unison, Christian Aid, um, Oxfam, um, Mercy Corps, with whom we're working for the first time. Um, and, and gender, who are supporting our sister strand, because women's empowerment has become a massive focus of our festival over the last few years. Um, and then we've got yeah, lots of uh, individuals who are working um, either as freelancers or who are campaigners, really dedicated campaigners. Just, yeah, it's really good to welcome such a diversity of... Uh, it's also a wealth of knowledge there for, for people to get hold of. Um, so you're opening on the 18th. What's the opening event? So PUSH, uh, this film uh, that the housing crisis um, is screening in Edinburgh on the 18th and Glasgow on the 19th. And as I said, it's meant it's going to be uh, presented in partnership with uh, Oxfam and Unison uh, for home homelessness and, and the housing crisis. It's not just about homelessness. It's also about cities becoming unaffordable and the way that the very makeup of our cities is, is changing and the reasons behind that and the reasons behind that are in a large part driven by global finance and it is too rarely spoken about mm. so um as i said the film is screening on uh, scottish housing day i think it's it's something that is affecting so many people and, and and it's going beyond the cities now because obviously rural populations have changed tremendously over the last decades and um it's not something that's only affecting people living in Lon london or, or new york it's affecting all of us great so it's uh, it's, it's 18th to 20th of september uh, opening at the film house, I think. Yep. It, yeah, first and film house. Uh, it's quite a long run, isn't it? Eleven days and you're twelve doing days. Yeah. 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 So that's that's quite hard work. I think. It can be, <laughs> yeah. but at the same time, I mean, how often do you get to do something you love? That's right. Um, Not like very that. often. And uh, no, and I've, I've had the privilege of working for Take One Action for. It's going to be my eighth festival. Wow. Okay. And um, to be honest, there's nothing else I'd like. I'd rather do. Great. And for people wanting to know more about Take One Action Film Festival, where can they go online to have? So they can check our website. It's probably mm -hmm. the best place to go. Takeoneaction.org.uk. Uh, they can also find information about our screenings on some of our venues' websites. So Filmhouse and GFT, you can book tickets directly. All of the tickets can be purchased through Take One Action. One of the things I'd like to mention, if it's okay, is like we have been uh, increasing our commitment to um, diversity and inclusion over the last few years. And um, and as part of that, we recognize the barriers that people face in buying tickets. So all our non-cinema venues now have a pay-what-you-can uh, tickets mm -hmm. sliding good. scale. And we don't ask for, there's no burden of proof, so you don't have to tell us whether you're a claimant or whether you receive any kind of benefit. You just decide for yourself what's manageable for you financially. And in um, we also offer £5.50 tickets in ve cinema venues across all of our cinema venues, across Aberdeen, Edinburgh, Glasgow, and in and, uh, Inverness for people under the age of 25, or 25 and under. And then we also have a community ticket fund. So if anyone's listening and uh, is either working with or volunteering with groups of people who face barriers to access, we have free tickets available for these groups. They just have to contact us and tell us what film they want to go and see. We've got a fantastic access and engagement coordinator this year called Alison Smith. Um, and also, <laughs> one more thing, because it's been really important for us along those lines, is that we now have um, sign language interpretation at both our opening and closing films in both Edinburgh and Glasgow. And we have uh, eight of the titles that we're screening this year out of the eight of the 20 features are um, captioned for people who are deaf or hard of hearing, but also for people who struggle with English, perhaps. So mm -hmm. we're hoping that this is going to make it a lot more accessible for a lot of people. 
Great. Well, um, that sounds fantastic. Well, thanks for coming along tomorrow. We wish you all the best with Take One Action Thank Film you. Festival. And we look forward to seeing the films. And um, see you later. Thanks. Thank you very much, Paul. Well, that's a wrap for the September edition of the Cinetopia Radio Show. Annie, what's happening at this month's Cinetopia Networking Night? Yeah, that's going to be on the 26th, on a Thursday, uh, back in Brewdog, Lothian Road. So uh, if you want to uh, meet us in person after listening to us every month, come over. Also, if you're a filmmaker, uh, if you're looking to crew your next production or anything like that, come and, come and have a chat, have a drink and uh, meet other filmmakers and film enthusiasts in Edinburgh. So that's 26th. Great, that sounds fantastic. So, uh, thank you also to Dana and Tamara for joining us today. We are looking forward to coming back next month where we'll be reviewing more films and talking about, of course, the Edinburgh Short Film Festival and the Cambridge Film Festival. The Cinetopia Radio Show is produced by myself, Paul Bruce, director of the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, Amanda Rogers, co-founder of Cinetopia and RPP Productions, Jim Ross, managing editor of Take One magazine, a UK-based magazine reviewing films from festivals around the world, and Annie As- Asikainen, co-founder of Cinetopia. And thanks to all our guests and to you for listening. So for more information about Cinetopia and our partners, go to cinetopiahub.com or follow us on social media at Cinetopia Hub. Goodbye for this month. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.